The following is a study on the book of Philippians. We thank you very much for listening with us, and we hope that this proved to be beneficial to you in the days to come. Okay, we're starting a study here on the book of Philippians. And the first thing I want to do in starting this study is look at the historical setting. Let's see who the Philippians were. Let's get an idea of the community and where Paul was headed. Historically, they were a wealthy people that were living in what was known as one of the leading cities of Macedonia. It was a prized Roman colony. And the city was governed by Roman laws and it was blessed by Rome. It was located in eastern Macedonia, which we know today as Greece. It's a town built around gold mines. And so there were a lot of people that frequented the area. There was a lot of money that was floating around in the area. And there were a lot of wealthy families. Paul is writing to them during his imprisonment in Rome around the year 62 AD, approximately 20 years after his initial visit to Philippi. Uh, his initial contact, if you want to follow it up in scripture and read about it, it's in Acts 16, 11 through 40. Now, this was already considered an ancient city when Paul arrived in 49 to 50 AD. It had its origins. Uh, they go back all the way before Christ arrived around 400 BC, and it was occupied by a people known as the Thracians. In 356 BC, however, Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, took over the city and named it after somebody he admired quite a bit. His name was Philip II of Macedon. He named it after himself, and thus we have the name Philippi. Eventually, Philippi was established as a military stronghold in order to protect the lands that Philip II had already acquired and the nearby gold mines, which yielded him a thousand talents annually, which is well over $1 billion in today's economy. It also was important as a land route across Asia, so it was a trade center and had a lot of commerce. In 68 BC, Philippi became part of the Roman Empire when the Romans defeated the Persians at the Battle of Pydna. Now at that time, Macedonia was divided into four districts, Philippi belonging to the first district, which is why Luke refers to Philippi as being located in the district of Macedonia. This history, to me, is very interesting to explore as I'd love to study history anyway. And it helps us to understand the people to whom Paul was writing. Paul, while at Troas, had a vision in the night of a Macedonian man standing and calling to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. This wasn't just a passing dream, but a real call that resulted in Paul heading over to Macedonia. He was aware of the town, he was aware of the history, and was aware of the religion in the area. Philippi was a town of commerce, as we mentioned, and also had a sizable population located on, again, a busy trade route. There was a lot of money and a lot of power, and also Rome's blessing had attracted a great deal of interest from a great deal of people, and people were always coming and going. Throughout history, wherever you find the power and the money, you'll always find influential people, financial stability, strong commerce, and an established spiritual atmosphere of some sort. Philippi was no different. The city stood out in Roman history as a place where the death of Julius Caesar was vindicated. It was here that Mark Anthony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius, the men who had assassinated Julius Caesar. This earned Philippi special recognition as a colony in high standing in the eyes of Rome. Philippi was given the privilege of Issus Italictum, which means that the city would be governed under Roman law rather than local law. It would have a greater deal of autonomy 
in their relations with the provincial governors. The people born in the city automatically gained Roman citizenship, and as Roman citizens, they were allowed to buy and sell property. They were exempt from land tax and the poll tax, and were entitled to protection under Roman law. If you were a Roman citizen, you had a great deal of protection. Isus Italicum was the highest liberty a municipality or province could obtain and was considered to be a cherished favor from Rome. Paul had to know all these things. He was not an ignorant man. He was a very studied individual and had been taught by the best. And coming from a privileged political position in Israel, Paul had access to a great deal of information that was not available to the average citizen. He knew who was in power and where the seats of power were established and the general political atmosphere of an area. Also, he was an astute man of high intelligence and a deeply spiritual individual. It would not be something that stood out in our thinking, but it was the first city touched with the gospel to the west of the Ural Mountains, meaning it was the first city evangelized in the Western world. It opened the door to Western Europe and beyond. Now, this being said, know this. You and I are experiencing the effects of Paul's entrance into Philippi. This was a far greater event than even Paul realized. God had his focus on a greater spread of the gospel, further than even these men understood. God was sending his message to all the world, a message that would resonate throughout history. God was moving to change the world with a message of hope and salvation, forgiveness and grace. Entering Philippi, Paul shows up and stays for what some people say is an extended period of over three months. Initially, he gets a feel of the place. What was the religious climate of the people? What was the religious practice in this area? Where were the churches, the synagogues, the monuments to the idols? Rome and Greek influence, along with the spiritual influence of the surrounding people, had been established here for quite some time. The wealth and the commerce or spiritual climate all served to establish cultural identity in the area. The attitude of the people was observed. Paul watched. Philippi was known for a synchristic society. That means the population was diverse with people coming and going from all over. And if you consider this in the diversity, then you have a mixture of all these ideas into one area. We have the same sort of thing here in America were perhaps as equally synchristic as well. The syncretism is simply a mixture of various beliefs poured into a pot of acceptance and dished out to the people. The assimilation would be similar to what you would find in the United States. People would say, oh, well, I hold to this and you hold to that. How interesting. You do you and I'll do me, okay? And perhaps I can learn from you and you can learn from me. Rome really did not care what you believed in so long as you kept Caesar at the top, meaning Rome was number one and loyalty was required and rewarded. Paul knew there had been Jews who were scattered, perhaps due to the persecution he administered himself. So he came looking for where the Jews met. Discovering no synagogues in the area, Paul ventured outside the gates of the city to the riverside looking for a place of prayer. Finding nothing, they sat down and began a discussion that would produce the first Christian in Europe. They talked to a lady named Lydia. It appears that she may have been a convert to Judaism, but we're told that she was a worshiper of God. The concepts and ideas Paul presented were not totally, completely foreign to her. She held to a monotheistic understanding of God and was familiar with the Jewish religion. 
The gospel made sense to her, and the Lord opened her understanding and allowed her to respond to the things Paul was saying. She was baptized along with her household, and she prevailed upon Paul and the others to come and stay at her house. That she had the means to support this evangelistic crew indicates that she may have been a woman of substantial means. She was a seller of purple, which does not mean she sold articles to wear of purple, but that she sold the dye that was used by those who manufactured the garments. She undoubtedly had contacts in Philippi, and word spread of what Paul was teaching. And we have a humble beginning of the church at Philippi. Now Luke takes great effort to point out Paul's encounter with the slave girl in Philippi and the events that ensued. Paul encountered a little slave girl with a demonic spirit which would foretell the future of many, and by which he earned her masters a great deal of money. She was a machine for the masters, a money maker. And to her owners, she was a cash cow. The lady began following Paul around and crying out, These men are bondservants or slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. This went on for days, and eventually it became an aggravation and an annoyance. Paul eventually rebuked the spirit, and it left her, and she stopped with her announcements. As a result, she lost the ability to foretell the future, and her earning capacity was over. This curtailed her fortune-telling enterprise. Now, prior to this, her owners did not really seem concerned with her following Paul and crying out in the streets, so long as the money kept coming in. The message Paul and Silas were preaching was of very little concern to these men. The gospel did not irritate or interest these guys. The issue was the money. So long as the money was steadily coming in, you could preach whatever you wanted. No problem. But the gospel has a way of disrupting the sinful actions of men. Truth has a way of binding evil. Grace has a way of dismantling greed. With the slave girl's demonic ability curtailed, these men demanded an explanation as to how this happened. Men will allow a great deal of things to occur around them. Society can change, governments can make declarations, and times can bring revolution. But when you touch that which is precious to a man, when you touch his money, men begin to get very, very upset. And these guys got very upset very quickly. They did not mind Paul's message, as we mentioned. They did not mind his methods until they found that the results of what he was teaching and the power of what he was doing was changing the lives of their people. The gospel was starting to interfere with the daily function of life. It began to interrupt the established norm. Oh, no, no, this is not acceptable, and it'll be stopped immediately. These men took action. They took Paul and Silas, and they brought them before the magistrates, the city officials. Philippi was like a little Rome, and they were charging that these strangers were forcing them to follow customs, which were actually unlawful in Rome. Apparently, the slave girl's owners were men of influence, and they were quickly given audience with the magistrates, and their case was adjudicated favorably and quickly. They took no time to consider the situation, nor did they find out who these guys were and what they were about. They were infuriated about their income being interrupted. And men of business and commerce, they understand that. Paul and Silas had messed with the man's money. Nobody complained to any magistrates prior to that. Until the money flow was interrupted, everything was okay. You can touch my horse and we can work it out. You can hit my dog and tell me why. But you touch my income and you've started a lot of trouble. 
This was done in the public square and witnessed by a crowd of people who had nothing to do with the situation. But the men were listening, and they heard what was going on. And they got together, and they were aiming at retribution and revenge, not righteousness and fairness. Aspersions were cast, and lies were told. One part of the story was heard. These men were Jews, they specified, and they're stirring up a lot of trouble. Nothing is mentioned about the slave girl. The crowd joined in on the attack. I'm sure few knew what all this was about, but it was a mob mentality. Why are we doing this, Lucius? I don't know, but they're not going to get away with what they've done, are they, Michael? So they joined in the commotion, and the town was in an uproar because this slave girl could no longer tell fortunes. The devil was aggravating the situation. He was hoping to halt what the Lord was just beginning. Paul and Silas were ordered by the officials to be beaten with sticks and cast into prison in order to be kept under tight security. How long would they stay in prison? We don't know. Who knows? They were bound in shackles. Their blood dripped from their backs and the bruises darkened and they ached. The town officials did not realize that they were assaulting the children of God. And God cares for his own. He had a goal in mind. It was not a matter of figuring out how to get Paul and Silas free, nor was it a matter of Paul and Silas getting themselves into a big mess. God could have allowed all this to be blown over and forgotten, but he chose not to. And look, we know it was the devil. We know that Satan was active and about his dastardly deeds. We know that, and we accept it. We see it. I know many would say this out of sincere heart, but we would have to say that we cannot credit Satan with the work God was doing. Satan the deceiver and the liar, is nothing more than the sergeant major in the barrack square of grace. He can do only that which he's allowed to do and nothing more. He does not operate independent of God. He's not a free-floating spirit. He, regardless of what we think, is under God's authority and can do nothing without his permission. No, God was establishing his glory in Philippi, and we see now what they could not see then. God was moving into Europe and the future of the Western world. This was no small incident. Why would God allow Paul and Silas to be beaten and abused in such a manner? This occurred more than once with Paul. Why? I do not know. Perhaps to gain the attention of the people? To elevate the message he was bringing to the people? While he did not have opportunity to raise his voice during the confrontation with the officials here in Philippi, God wanted him to speak directly to the jailer. The crowd that confronted Paul and Silas were only aware of what they had heard from the upset businessman, and they could only dream of what was going on. We could ask the same question regarding Joseph and Jeremiah, Job, and Jesus himself. That will be a good question to ask when we get to heaven. Why all the suffering? Men can offer conjecture and opinion, and they can make some tremendous observations, but as far as understanding the mind of God, truly, it just goes beyond us. We can scour history, and we can find examples where such incidents open the door for greater opportunity in a variety of professions and situations. We can be assured of this, though. It's apparent that God wanted Paul and Silas to sit in a Philippian jail, singing songs and praying. Banged and bruised, bloodied and beaten, this is exactly what these two men did. Around midnight, there was an earthquake, and all the prison doors flew open. Paul and Silas, in the minds of many, would have been wise to walk out and quietly walk away, living to fight another day. 
The treatment they had received was horrible. The beating that they received was terrible. What exactly had they done wrong? The jailer, the officials, the slave masters, the crowd, they showed no kindness and no temperance at all for the two and their message. They didn't listen to them. They didn't care. There was a mob, and this mob had been incited by the remonstrations of angry businessmen. The future did not look too rosy either. They could have walked away that night, relieved to be in one piece, but they didn't. No, they stayed, and they shared the gospel with the jailer, who was ready to kill himself with his own sword. It was the honorable thing to do in Roman society. A defective soldier was rejected, and the jailer slept while the criminals escaped. There would be no excuses. So he drew his sword. But Paul, knowing the typical Roman response, called to him, Don't do it. Don't harm yourself. Nobody's left. Nobody's escaped. We're all here. The jailer, who more than likely was a retired soldier from among the Roman legions, was stunned. He recognized power and character. Typically, the Roman soldier was a calloused individual that held no emotional sympathy for those under the charge. Yet this man fell before Paul and Silas in gratitude and awe. Undoubtedly, Paul and Silas spoke to him of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. The jailer brought them out and asked them after hearing what they had to say, Sir, what do I need to do in order to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household is what Paul told him. The jailer rejoiced and glorified God. After these things had occurred, the officials called for the jailer to release the two. The jailer came to Paul and said, You can go now. They said, You can leave. You're released. You can go peacefully. Paul stepped back and said, No, it doesn't work that way, my jailer friend. These Roman officials have beaten and condemned us publicly without a trial, and they've thrown us in jail like we were dogs and not Roman citizens. Oh, no. No, my friend. They want us to crawl away quietly in secret. Nope. They're not going to get away with what they've done. Have them come and escort us out. Roman citizens? You guys are Roman citizens? When the officials heard this, they knew instantly they had committed some serious mistakes. The penalty for abusing a Roman citizen without a trial was so severe, it could possibly lead to crucifixion. If Rome found out what they had done, it could be disastrous. The officials came and escorted them out of prison in the eyes of all the people, and they asked them to leave the city. In spite of the urging of the officials, Paul first went to Lydia's house. Apparently, there were others who had joined Lydia in her faith. Seeing the brethren, Paul and Silas encouraged them, and then they left. The people had seen the strength of the Lord displayed. The Lord established his power and elevated the gospel in the minds of the new believers. And they saw Paul was a fearless and a wise man and spoke with a great deal of authority and power. So much so that the demons even obeyed him. Here was seen the first female convert in Europe, Lydia, a wealthy merchant who had followed the Jewish God prior to Paul's arrival. And here we see the first male convert in Europe, the jailer. The jailer's name is never revealed. But he and his family will be in heaven. And when we meet him there, we'll be able to ask them a number of questions. We will all have all of eternity to listen and to learn of what happened in Philippi. And thus, the establishing of the foundations of that first church in Europe was established. We see her in her nascent stages. It was God's work, and God's work done in God's way, by the power of God, never lacks. 
And remember this, Jesus Christ said, I will build my assembly, my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it.